Well, hey there, Gen X family. Our show today is meant to serve as a tribute and a time of reflection. My name is Matt Marshall, and with me today are two very special people. Ed, want to introduce yourself? I'm Ed Wasson, a.k.a. Wilksy. Glad to be here, Matt. Excellent. Also with us today is my wife and best friend, Kristen Marshall. Kristen, can you take just a minute to tell us about yourself? Hi, I'm Kristen Marshall. I've been married to Matt for 30 years. I'm a parent educator with the local health department, and I have three kids. Sometimes I was a part-time single mom due to Matt's crazy schedule. Matt, I think this is the point in time that I was going to request that we have a moment of silence. Okay. Thanks, Ed, for that moment of silence. We, we had talked about this, you know, when we, were, uh, when we were originally planning this. It started out as just a concept, right? You and I were, we were talking through things when we first started this whole podcast adventure. And, and you, I think, realized that we were so close to the 20th anniversary of September 11th terrorist attacks. And, mm-hmm. and um, we thought, gosh, what better way to prepare and to, and to talk about preparedness uh, for a nation and for communities and such than to remember some of the worst attacks that we've, uh, that we've ever experienced. And if I remember correctly, we both kind of were talking about it and, and we, we agreed we got to have some sort of, some sort of special episode. Yeah. And so we, so we started talking, you had a number of people already that you were like, ah, yes, that, that person is, would be fantastic to talk to about yeah. this and get their experience. And eventually this kind of turned into what we're, what we're seeing today and tomorrow, right. which right. will be a series of interview shows that we've, that we've recorded over the last month. There was a lot of, um, you know, a lot of things that we talked about a lot of experiences that actually just having these discussions changed me a bit yeah because i started to realize some some things about myself which was uh um it was it was strange for me so yeah it's been a kind of a somber and sad experience so far because it's brought up a lot of those memories and we're talking with chuck and chuck um started weeping a little bit uh, Darren, um, he had an incredible story. He was in boot camp in the Navy when the, when the terrorist attacks happened. And, uh, so he was pretty scared and impressed. 
Bill had a lot of friends that were there in the towers. Mm -hmm. And then since then, uh, even at work, they've had, they developed a, a Slack channel for discussion about nine 11. It's got, uh, our, our company has about 750 people signed up on it and they're chatting about what their experiences were. So I'm reading through all these things. There's a lot of military veterans there. So, uh, they're bringing in a lot of different experiences. So it's been a lot of interesting, different stories that, that really hit you. And then of course you have the higher end production stuff on Netflix mm -hmm. with the new nine 11 series and things like that. And then that's bringing up all the memories of all those, uh, some of those actors that we were investigating and trying to track to this day, though, some of those guys are still out there to this day. There's still some unindicted co-conspirators as far as I know, they're still living in New York City. On, on one hand, I feel like it's necessary to talk about it and bring it up. And it's it's interesting because it's like 20 years on now and you're still it's still weighing so heavy on everybody's minds. That was one of the things that I think struck me the most with uh, with Chuck is. Yeah, I mean, he he, he said where, you know, he doesn't really think about it. He doesn't go to the memorial at the Pentagon, you know, different, different things like that. And it's 20 years later and still thinking about that, that one guy, yeah, that one guy that he helped pull from the, from the wreckage and, and it, uh, and it made him, made him choke up pretty, pretty heavily. So just a couple of things um, over the past few weeks, one of the things that the ways that it changed me is I realized that being so far away, I felt removed from the situation. Right. It was almost like, well, that's happening out there in New York or that's happening over there in DC or Pennsylvania or whatever it may be. And I think there's this vast majority, this, this huge swath of land and people that probably felt very, very similar. Yeah. They're like, yes, the country's under attack, but that's way over there in New York. That's way over there in the East. And but at that point in time, we were still living, Kristen, we were still living uh, back in New Mexico. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, so one of the questions I actually, I, I wanted to ask Kristen, the, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to bring Kristen into the discussion today is I am horrible at remembering things and she can attest to it. And so it helps when I talk to her, it helps me remember things that happened. So at the time of the attacks, we were like Kristen, you and I, we were, we were, we were hearing the news. We were watching the images on the TV, processing what it might mean. And, and you maybe were processing what it meant for you, for our family, for our friends. And I remember us having this discussion about Josh, what it might mean for him uh, now, 20 years down in the future. Right. Um, yeah. So one of the questions I had for you just to start is um, what do you remember life being like? before September 11th uh, hit the U.S.? Just before, we had moved into our first house that we owned. And that was a crazy summer. Um, we were renovating the house. So we were really busy with that. The kids had both had accidents recently. The little one had a piece of cement wall fall on his foot. He was okay. But then... Josh, our oldest one, he had this horrific accident at school 
Um, and school started there like mid August. And um, I think he was only there for two days and he actually was knocked out in his classroom and he broke four teeth. Uh, They were concerned that he broke his jaw, but he didn't. Um, But he had a bad concussion. And I'm telling you this because back then we didn't have cell phones yet. Yeah, There were cell phones, but not for the majority of us. So I I had one, but it was horrible. yeah. Yeah. And so I had a pager and because we had moved into a new house, we didn't have the phones hooked up yet. And so my pager was not receiving the signal to call into the school. And so it wasn't until I stepped outside with the little toddler that I got pinged and saw that the school had tried to call me 11 times. Mm-hmm. And so I had managed to get to the school before the ambulance got there and I was able to take him to the hospital myself. But I remember that I, you're asking what happened right before. I remember that that couple of weeks right before this happened, I honed in on you to get our phone put in place in yeah. the house because I was like, I'm not having that happen again. And so we had just gotten a phone put in. We didn't have cable put in. So we weren't watching TV. Um, We had a TV and a VCR for the kids and we would put in entertainment for them. So I was kind of remote unless I was listening to news on my radio. Mm -hmm. And um, And that was typically in the car or something when you were going, when you were driving around with the kids. Yeah. 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 Right. Good old days. Oh yeah. Yeah. So, so one more, one more question, uh, just kind of take us back to what you remember from the day of the attacks and just kind of share that with the audience, what, you know, what you, what you experienced leading up to it. And then, you know, shortly after the attacks. So I remember I was making pancakes. Um, it was early in the week. I know that I don't remember exact day but I know it was early in the week and I was making pancakes for the two boys. And uh, we lived close enough to the elementary school that it was our habit that we would walk Josh to elementary school. I would continue a walk with Noah in the stroller. That was just part of my routine. So my routine that day was Josh was getting ready for school. I was making pancakes to feed them. And then you called, you said, Hey, can you put a radio on something's happening to the country? And I was like, okay, what's happening? And so then you explained that a plane had hit one of the towers at New York. Then you said, then another plane had hit and that it didn't look good. And I was like, well, two planes, that's an attack, right? And you said, yeah, I, we're, I think it's an attack. And um, as we were speaking to each other, the Pentagon got hit. Mm-hmm. And you told me, hey, hey, listen, the Pentagon just got hit. And I was like, wait, what? And you told me, yeah, the Pentagon was just hit with a plane. And of course, at this point, in my mind, we're like so far away from the East Coast. But all I'm picturing is just plane after plane hitting everything. Mm-hmm. Like there's some weird attack happening on America. 
And so I remember I just was like, no, and I just fell to my knees on the floor right there in the kitchen in front of the oven. And I know I was joined by thousands of Americans probably at the same time. We're all praying like, Lord, please just make this stop. Um, And so then after I was done saying my prayer, I was like, what should I do? Like, what, how does it affect me? Like, do I send my kid to school? Mm -hmm. Do I keep him home? Like, what should I be doing right now? And I remember I asked you, and so we formed a plan and you said, you know what, why don't you go to the grocery store? Let's get some goods that we could use in case things kind of shut down on us. Cause we didn't know how big this attack was going to grow. And so you and I quickly agreed, like, let's get bread, rice, beans, cheese, things that can keep us going. The kids will eat Yeah, and water. Water was a big thing because we lived out in the desert. We were like, we might as well get lots of water. So I looked at Josh, like I fed the boys. I don't think I told them exactly what was going on yet. And then I just kind of bid my time. And so then when Josh and I and Noah started out on our walk, I, on the walk, I started saying things might be a little weird at school today. And I was like, I'm not sure if you'll go there for a full day or not yet. And I said, I want you to know that I'm real close. I'm not going too far. I'm going to drop you off. And then Noah and I are going to go to the grocery store. We'll be right by you the whole day. And I said, but um, it sounds like America was attacked. And of course, he had a lot of questions. So I tried to put it just as brief as I could. I told him I didn't know how bad it was yet, that I was going to try to find out more. And that I felt weird putting him in school. And then I asked him, are you okay with going to school? Um, And he said, yeah, I think so. And And so. Noah Noah was like seven or eight or so. No, Noah was two. Oh, yeah. Josh was about nine at the the time. Josh. Sorry. Yeah. 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 Mixing those two up. He's the older one. And (laughs) Noah's like off in his own little world in the smaller there. Josh. (laughs) So, So Josh was nine. Yes. Josh was nine. And so then I, I went to the grocery store with Noah and nobody was there. There was like one other woman shopping, which I thought was weird. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of loaded up on staples, things I knew we would use, yeah. but things that also could be used like stored long-term. Yeah. So I got that and a lot of water. And then I got in the car and I was like, shoot, what else do I do? And by now I had heard about the plane going down in Pennsylvania and, um, and then we didn't hear any more planes for the rest of the day, which I was so thankful for, but I sat there in the car and I was like, I think I should go get gas. I think we should gas up the car. I think that's the next best thing. And then I remember hearing some talk radio and they were saying, you know, you should go get duct tape and plastic. And <laughs> so I was like, it's Armageddon. Ah. So yep. that's right. I decided before we, I would send Matt to get those things. So I went to the gas station and they were all talking about it. I just thought, oh, 
I really wish I could talk to my grandma and grandpa on my mom's side right now. There was a lot of things going through me at that moment because I realized talking to this person at the convenience store, like they had no clue. This was totally different than what we've been through before as a country because they made some big changes in their life. Grandpa was enlisted and stuff like that. And I just wanted, I wanted their perspective at that point because they had been through the previous biggest catastrophe. And, um, but they were no longer with us. And so I couldn't, I couldn't call them. And then I thought about the trips that you had taken Mm -hmm. and the discussions we had about what the mid East looked like, what was going on there, the conflicts that were happening that you saw firsthand. And, um, I just thought, wow, we have never been in a culture war before. Not really. Yeah. Not at this level. And um, and then I immediately started thinking about, like, that's going to take a long time to come to some kind of peace. Like, that's a long fight. That's not a short thing. Right. And so then I started thinking about my son, who was nine And I was like, in nine years, we could still be in it. And so I was thought, well, I'm going to talk to Matt, but I think we need to sit Josh down and show him what happened Yeah. and explain to him there could be a draft when you're 18. This is why. And And there virtually was a draft for a little while in about like about 2004 to 2008 or so they called it a backdoor kind of draft. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it wasn't an outright draft, but yeah. Yeah. Well, so can you actually, Ed, can you explain a little bit more about that? What you, what you mean by that? What a lot of people that I talk to forget is that post like immediately after nine 11, there's huge rally cries, a lot of, uh, outrage and patriotism and unity in America. Mm -hmm. And we went into Afghanistan and everybody was sure enough about that. That was fine. But a lot of people forget that when we went into Iraq, there was, there was some questions about that. So we went into Iraq and uh, that was in about 2003. I think we actually pushed up about March, 2003 into what would become Operation Iraqi Freedom? Well, the initial invasion and stuff, there was there's quite a lot of uh, ground fighting with a lot of the troops there. A lot of the Marines and Army soldiers saw a lot of uh, ground combat going all the way up into Baghdad. And there was a lot of artillery, a lot of uh, air support, everything else like that. And there, there was a lot of death and destruction. And then there was a lull in the Iraqi operation from probably towards the end of 2003 till about coming into around 2000 and the end of 2004 or so, but then they started the surge. Well, in America, there was, after a couple of units had gotten back, there was a lot of people that wanted to get out, but what happened was, and, and Rand had done a rent, the Rand corporation had been mm-hmm. uh, tasked by the army 
to do a study on this. And Rand a long time ago, a long time before had said the U.S. Army cannot sustain this level of combat operations for very long before they start running into combat fatigue because and they, they had recommended we recommend you break down into smaller units. And the Army eventually did a little bit. They developed their striker units and the Army used to be known as being a little bit soft. Their infantry started to get, especially their infantry units started getting a lot harder. The training started getting harder and more intense. And a lot more troops were seeing a lot more combat operations, especially those in Iraq that some people were questioning. And a lot of people were questioning the anthrax vaccinations. So when I was in, like, if you were in an infantry unit, you're there's a lot of guys that are pretty gung ho, but I also went to the supply and armor course in Fort Lee, Virginia, and they had a whole unit of people there, like hundreds, hundreds of people that basically they, they either intentionally committed criminal acts or they took drugs or something like that. So they would um, come up positive on a urinalysis or whatever, because they were trying to get kicked out of the army. Uh, yes. However, there was a back there's what, that's what we were calling the backdoor draft is those guys were not kicked out and they ended up being a huge um, morale problem for the army, for those units that they got deployed to, because the army said, you're not getting kicked out. You're getting your rank taken away. And your pay taken away, and you're going to deploy again. I'm mm-hmm. telling you the the morale with some of those units that some of those guys were in was horrible because those guys were such a discipline problem. It it was uh, hard for me to comprehend the yeah. level of. I mean, they were just the worst. They didn't want to do anything. You couldn't hardly get them to do anything. It's such a leadership challenge. But there was that, and then there was a the the economy was kind of going down a little bit too. So mm-hmm. although I went to the supply and armor course, I had signed up at that time to be an in intelligence. Well, they needed to get me through a course fast so I could be army MOS qualified. So I could go to airborne. Plus there was a lag in my, in getting my clearance fully developed. I needed a full secret clearance before I could go through the full Intel courses. So that's what they used the, armor and supply course for went to airborne school. And while I was in the language school and the Intel schools, that's when I ran into a lot of college graduates that didn't want to join the military, but they couldn't find any other job, even with a degree. Uh, Yeah. Right. So they were in the military and there's like, I hope I don't deploy, but I scored high enough on the ASVAB. So I'm going to be in intelligence and, and language. So hopefully I don't see much combat and hopefully I don't deploy much, but I, I met quite a few of those. So those two factors there was kind of what people at in the military that I was working with were referring to as a backdoor draft. As a backdoor. Okay. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Gotcha. Interesting. If we kind of took a look back at the interviews that we've already done, Ed, there's a couple of things that really stick out from each one. And, and Kristen, you haven't seen these, these interviews necessarily yet. Um, but I've, I've told you about some of them. You kind of have a a basic idea of some of the, some of the guys that we were, uh, that were, we were interviewing with. I wanted to start with Darren. He was the first one that we, that we interviewed. His 
yeah, his, his background, you know, he's, he basically, he was in basic training in the Navy when the attacks happened, they pulled that the whole group, they weren't yet inducted into the, into the, uh, the military yet. They were still just in basic. One of the things that was so impressive was how he reacted and his resolve, you know, his, he's like, he said right up at the beginning, he said, I'm just a kid. I'm going to go to basic. I'm going to do my four years. I'm going to get my college and I'm going to start life. You know, that it it was like this, this, I'm just here because it's the easiest thing, the best thing or whatever that I can do for myself. Right. Right. And the day that it happened, it was like everything changed for him. He committed, he recommitted, I would say his life to the military. Right. And is still serving in the military today, you know, 20 years later, right. just like you, Ed, he's not necessarily doing infantry or anything like that, but you kind of serve in the background. And when you're still right. working with other military organizations, you know, that that's a pretty powerful thing. Is there is there anything in particular you remember from from the discussion that we had with Darren? Well, I remember him speaking about that resolve and um, I knowing what I know about Darren, I, I know he he did have a checkered past. So he was, when I knew him in Cuba, he, we were talking and um, when he was talking to me, then he was telling, he was related to me that he was just happy that he was able to get in the military at all. Mm. But he told me then, and then he reiterated it during our chat with him. He's like, when that happened, that's when something just clicked in him and he's like committed and he had that resolve. Yeah. And, um, you know, to be, to be honest with you, I've seen him just lock on. I've seen the way he handles his troops because by the time I met him, he'd been in for almost seven years mm-hmm. and he was a chief petty officer. So I saw the, I saw his leadership style and everything. And, and he's not a you know big guy. He's just like an average Joe. And like you said, he's, in um, what we call, would refer to as a soft skill. He's doing that kind of like intelligent stuff in the background. And he's not in the trenches digging through the deep data and stuff like that and like plotting things or writing reports. He's at the point, even when I first met him, he's directing others on how they do it. And since then, he's gone through even more and more courses and he's an officer now. When he was talking with us, it just resonated more that uh, from that moment and he was pointing out even with his drill instructors in the navy you know they took a break from yelling at us yeah but still when they would be yelling at us it was yelling at us with a purpose with a purpose i remember him saying so, that yeah yeah so for him to identify that he and he might not have had it like locked into his head and identified then but now he can say you know there's a purpose and there's a reason that there's people that try to create order in the world that we live in. And we are those people and this is our mission. So that's the kind of feeling I was getting from talking with him is I have a bigger mission and purpose now and we're driven. Yeah. It was, it was really impressive to see Uh, shifting gears just slightly. Kristen, we had this conversation a couple of days ago. There was this there was this other event. Now, my impression of September 11th when it hit 
the first thing I was thinking is the, you know, like the survival rule of threes, where one of the top things you need to do is get water, have water available for you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I I think that was one of my top things that I was, I was saying, Kristen, you go grab some on my way work, my, on my way home from work, I'll grab some more. We'll have a whole shipload of water. Um, But what I was, where I was going with that is a couple of years before there was another event that occurred. And yeah. Ed, you and I've talked about this just, just a little bit. And we barely yep. touched on it. And that's Y2K, yep. right? A lot of hoopla, a lot of, lot of uh, you know, end times discussions going on around Y2K. But for even, even that hoopla created a sufficient amount of disruption. Absolutely. Exactly right. Exactly right. Now, it probably generated some, <laughs> some uh, whole nother economy of things yeah. going on in the background. But yeah. like I said, it made me it caused me to want to go get guns and ammo and things mm-hmm. like that to protect myself. Right now, Kristen's rolling her eyes. I see that, but, um, <laughs> but you were all on board when I went and got those. The The question I had, I had for you, Kristen, and then we, the week we were kind of talking about it. I believed because of the, the preparing and the planning and things like that, that we had done because of Y2K what two years a year and a half before mm-hmm. i thought we and our country would be better prepared but you made a different point yeah Do you remember that what was your yeah point? my point was i felt like the y2k flop which it turned out to be <laughs> i think it really made people sarcastic towards being prepared mm-hmm. And I think it kind of jaded them. And it was kind of like, why am I going to go spend all that money for something that will probably never happen? So I think in a way, I think Y2K hurt us for being prepared. But in all fairness, there were other things that were revealed in 9-11 that were our weaknesses. Yeah. And um We'll get into that later. Yeah, but, um, that's good stuff. Yeah. yeah, and I agree with Kristen on that. I, I, looking back on it, and I never thought about it before, really. I feel kind of singled out now, Ed, that you're agreeing with her and not me. Well, I agree with you almost all the time, but um, I don't get to talk to Kristen as much. That's so true. That's true. She said something that is you know, um, smashingly agreeable to me because I never thought about that before. (laughs) Even in all my intelligence studies with, with uh, Homeland security and you're looking at critical infrastructure and all this other stuff. I remember them talking about Y2K and everything else like that, but making that particular observation and saying, well, you know, that Y2K flop actually kind of messed us up a little bit. And I agree. Even now thinking about, I'm like, yeah, you know what? I remember I I kind of got in a lull after that. And then 9-11 hit and I was like, well, I'm totally unprepared. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and the other the other thing that that was really important, I thought a, another great point that Kristen made to me a couple of days ago. I think it was around that point in time that all these like doomsday prepper shows mm-hmm. on, on home and garden network or whatever. I don't remember national geographic or whatever it was, mm-hmm. all these different, like really weird preparedness programs were coming out and they're basically making these people look like fools. Yeah. You know, even though those people are the ones who are 
absolutely the most prepared if yeah. something like 9-11 ever happened. They would be the ones that would be, or first of all. Or a pandemic. Or a pandemic. Yes. Yeah. They didn't. Well, they probably weren't even weren't, weren't even bothered and at all by the pandemic, yeah. you know? And I agree with that, too, because I, in from 99 to 2000, I was in a kind of stage between law enforcement and military stints. And I was driving a truck from mm-hmm. water to water. Remember, I ran into you in, in uh, Pennsylvania one time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was listening to a lot of talk radio at the time, both on both sides. And things weren't as as politically polarized back then. But there's still, you know, you still had some stuff that was far right. And you had some stuff that was far left. And then I would usually drive later in the night. And you would hear all these things. That's when Alex Jones started getting mm-hmm. bigger. And a bunch of others like that. And uh, those guys made quite a quite a bit of a circus of it, and and they did make it appear um, almost foolish. Yeah, I mean, to some that were those devout, those guys were like, oh yeah, you know, Alex Jones, Infowars, and and whatever else was going on. There's two or three other programs that I hear, and some of them were talking about UFOs and everything else like that. Some yeah. of them were talking, still talking about Clinton conspiracies, even though Clinton was pretty much a lame duck out of office at, at that time. But uh, yeah, there was a lot of prepping type shows on the talk radio that kind of made folly of it. Yeah, and kind of, kind of made us not prepared, you know, right. as, as, you as, a, those, as a country. At, at, at that time, you thought those guys are the wackos and they're telling you invest in gold and stock up. And you mm-hmm. might want to start thinking about building a, like a nuclear fallout shelter in your, in your basement or something, you know, all this kind of stuff. And nowadays it's actually a lot of that stuff on uh, that's not too far ended. Most of the basic core of it's actually a pretty dang good idea. Yep. Yep. If you do it, if you do it in a smart way, if you do it in a realistic way, yeah. Then it makes all the sense in the world because, you know, we're in the process of, uh, of, doing a show on making a plan and and some of the ideas around that can be as simple as a fire escape plan mm-hmm. you know the number one thing that people search for on google when it comes to preparedness is fires and how do i how do i how can i remain safe in a fire yeah. or how can i get out of a fire how can i plan how can i get you know plan an escape route things like that how do i plan places where i can congregate with my family after a fire you know and yeah, probably ahead. contingency plans if i can't get out this way and i have to go through the fire is there a way i can get a blanket or something and and douse it with some water and run through a little bit of fire yeah could i do that yeah go ahead Kristen. yeah I was going to say um, there's a great resource, both in English and in Spanish on FEMA.gov that will walk a family through making a fire escape plan. And they have coloring books for kids. And so uh, that's one of the things I push on families when I'm working with them as a parent educator is you've got to have a fire escape plan, yeah, a yeah. good one. Yeah, absolutely. That's the number one thing that people are asking for. You know, and and you you think about that if you if you approach if you approach preparedness from a an, an intellectual standpoint, and again, like I said, a realistic standpoint, you're you're going to do nothing but good for yourself, for your family, for your community. So yeah. that's one of the reasons we 
we made the show ed so yeah wonderful and i hope we keep pushing that all those messages out to yeah. all the people who reasonably want to listen to this type of message and that fire message is one of the main messages i remember from talking with chuck because chuck yeah. that's when chuck got all torn up when they first got to the pentagon and they were trying to pull some people out yeah. um some of them people were severely burned and chuck is messed up to that about that to this day and i've never personally experienced it too much but um, a lot, a lot of other people that have uh, had it happen or experienced something like that say you never get that smell, the smell out of your nose of somebody burning mm -hmm. that bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's when um, it, that's something like that hit Chuck. That memory hit Chuck, and and uh, then it it hit us. It was like, dang, that that was a tough time for Chuck. Yeah. And it, I know that that happened for Chuck at a national incident, but speaking as a child who lost grandparents to a brownstone mm. fire mm. um and you can ask matt i still have nightmares i'm yeah. well into my fifth decade of life and i still have nightmares occasionally about going into grandma and grandpa's backyard afterwards and the smell wow I'll never forget the smell yeah ever that's horrible yeah okay but i gotta i gotta uh, stop you for a minute because we're not in our fifth decade Neither one of us. We're still 25. I'm just telling you. Still oh, okay. 25. Well, I was going to say when she said that, I was like, no, Kristen, Kristen you're only 30. Okay. 25. <laughs> sure. What happened? That's right. I'm 25. <laughs> She's 30. <laughs> I, can I, tell that I, I can tell that time has stopped for you, but not me. <laughs> I know this. I'm just dealing with it. Yeah. Yeah. So was there was there anything else, Ed, from uh, from Chuck's discussion that you thought was uh, was interesting or? Well, we get into um, a little bit more personal experience with Chuck because uh, Chuck has always been just salt of the earth kind of guy. And mm -hmm. in my travels, I've visited him out there in that neck of the woods, him and Kristen and the family, Christy and the family a few times. And he, as you know, you guys were at our wedding and he was at our wedding and everything. So I know Chuck pretty well. And, you know, the thing was when we were in our first duty station in Kings Bay, Georgia, we, we weren't super close friends then. And I simply wasn't able to go to his wedding because I had some sort of firewatch duty that night or something like that. So I missed that or else I'm sure Chuck and Chuck and I would have even had a stronger bond. Mm -hmm. But after our first duty station, we were familiar enough with each other and close enough with each other. He got to the un the same unit in California as I was going to. He was just in Delta Company and I was going to go to Charlie Company. So his barracks was just across the drill, the parade deck from, from where my barracks was. I, and and uh, Felicia and I, my first wife at the time, we were living out. We were going to be living out in town, but actually hadn't got married yet this was just before we went to the gulf so from a personal experience i know chuck is just this very um light-hearted happy-go-lucky positive energy kind of guy yeah and he's always been that way then we went to desert storm together and his unit did a couple of different things and my unit did a couple of different things they went on one island where they pulled i can't remember if they 
I think they had 1500 POWs on that Island that they, they brought on the ship and then quarantined, but there's also a lot of dead bodies. So seeing dead bodies, is nothing new for Chuck. And then he became a cop. And I know as a cop, he's seen fatal accidents and things like this for me to see Chuck reflect on something from 20 years ago mm-hmm. and have it hit him that hard hit me really hard because um, it, it had to be just that deeply impactful. We're not talking about yeah. just any kind of traffic accident. We're not talking about just bodies or something like that. The, the totality of the situation hit Chuck so hard and he did what he did in that moment. And they had to be pulled. Remember he they yeah. said they had to be yeah. pulled off and say, you guys, all right, we're fire and rescue. You guys get out of here. We've got it. Yeah. So they were those kind of guys that got there first and did what they could and tried to help. Mm-hmm. And so he saw that he was there. He tried to help and he's that kind of guy. And then he's reflecting on it 20 years later and it's hitting him like a sack of potatoes just um crushing him and then that crushed me so yeah i think one of the things that's interesting about that is in the other situations chuck was he was employed or he was um nominating himself for a position to be yeah in that yeah on september 11th he didn't volunteer. He didn't nominate. He didn't get employed. He didn't get contracted to be in the position to deal with dead bodies. It's one thing when you know that's part of your position to get yourself in the mindset and you know, this is what you're dealing with day Mm -hmm. in and day out. Yeah. And to be suddenly pulled into it. Yeah. That's hundred percent accurate. Um, analogy there on that as well, Kristen, because like you said, you're a cop and every day and boom, there's a traffic accident. Oh, uh, call the ambulance or whatever. It's my job like that. Yeah. Yep. That's my, and and you're expecting it to happen. Yeah. You're right. So nine 11, boom, uh, a plane in the Pentagon. What you're and they they had already seen one of the planes that hit the the towers. The other plane hit the, the, the other tower, uh, sometime right about the same time the plane hit the Pentagon, something like mm-hmm. that. The the news had disparate information on which happened first, but I think it's the first tower got hit, then the Pentagon, then a few minutes later, the second tower got hit. But at the time they were putting it out the news, I think that the second tower got hit. And then later, a few minutes later, they said the Pentagon hit it, at any rate. Yeah. I he, think actually, you know what you, you made that is a, just the fact that you're still confused on that. Yeah. That, that, is very telling of what mm-hmm. it was like that day. Yep. Yeah. That day was so confusing for so many people because yeah. one news broadcast would say one thing, another would say another one. They're obviously getting their information from totally different sources, yeah. right? There is no common source, which brings up a an, an, a really big point, but we're not going to go there yet, Kristen. Right. <laughs> I know she's just itching. <laughs> she's just itching to talk about it. But oh. anyways... Sorry, sorry, I interrupted. Ed, go ahead. No, no, you're fine. We're, I think we're, we're all on the same page here. Yeah, the one, the one thing that I wanted to talk about, I think related to Chuck, is you're right. I met Chuck, whatever, four years ago, whatever, whatever it might be. We mm-hmm. spent that, spent that time together. That very special I, time. 
and I thought he was one of the rudest, crudest, <laughs> dudest guys that I've ever met. And I was just I like, like, man, him. this this dude is crazy. This yeah. dude is crazy. And, and that's and, part of the reason is he just has zero Fs to give anymore. <laughs> well, he had plenty of F Fs to give. Just yeah. speaking them is all he was doing. But yeah. but it was that was my initial impression of him. When I sat and listened to him during our interview, I was like, man, I got to tell you, if I went through that kind of crap, I'd probably be saying, acting the same way. You mm -hmm. know, I'd be just like, I don't give a rat's ass. I'm just like, hey, I'm living life. I'm happy I'm alive yeah. because there are thousands of people who lose their lives in crazy, semi-random events like that. And then there's people like me who have to deal with it. Yeah. You know, and and so that was that was one thing that was really that it, it changed my impression of of Chuck in a pretty major way. You know, yeah. I, I definitely gained a massive amount of respect for him. And it was the the I, I put it into one of my little one of my little one minute clips. And that's that's the uh, he said he said, yeah, we you know, my partner came up. We said, hey, let's go. They went and they jumped in the car. And, and he, the partner said, where are we going? And he said, just go to where there's smoke. Yeah. And I was going, dang, man, that's like, how many people go toward the smoke? And, and one of the, one of the comments that I made is crazy people like Chuck and like my wife <laughs> go toward the smoke I and they can... go and they want to fix things. They want to go like, I've got to get into that. You know? They want to like, they want to fight too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Some different people have different spirit of like, sort of like fight or resist or resilience for different situations. I come up on like, this is totally off topic, but there's a lot of times, even with all of my experience that I have, that I question my courage because courage is a hard thing to measure, mm. especially if you're, predominantly working in soft spaces or white collar corporate America for so long. And mm. even if, even if you're going through like police or infantry type training, it's hard to measure courage until something really happens. But I was taking my dog scout to the dog park the other day and um, a big mean German shepherd inside the dog park just immediately started attacking scout. It, and he blindsided us from the left, just eat just <clears throat> suddenly and shockingly. And um, I pulled Scout back a little bit and stood my ground and was ready to, to engage with a fur-covered razor blade. Yeah. And I just said, you know, shouted, back off, back off. And I was about ready to kick it or something. But that showed me that in that situation anyway, I'm ready to take on at least a German Shepherd. So, <laughs> <laughs> At least a German Shepherd. There you go. That's courage, man. That's courage. a little bit of courage. And I didn't have to have a drink for that either. I was... That's good. No, no liquid encouragement there. No, no. no. <laughs> so, yeah, for Chuck, when I said, like, I know Chuck's on duty and he's, they have time and space to look at this and observe. And they say, let's go. Yeah. Where's the smoke? That's a whole different level. It it really is. And, and that was his, like, that's just his reaction. That's what he did. You know, that's, yeah. an, that's an impressive thing. I keep, mm -hmm. I, I think I joked about it in one of our past, past shows about, 
about my my wife Kristen. That's a lot of and, courage. And and how how it's <laughs> I heard that. them fighting words for sure um no they that i think about i i'm not fearful but i'm i i know that in my mind i should be there to protect right and i feel like i've got that old chivalrous stuff going on in the back of my head that says i need to be there to protect her and but I know also that if, say, for instance, an active shooter or active assailant comes into a grocery store or something and we hear something going on by the front door, she's going to want to go toward it. Not an active shooter. And, and I'm going to. Well, if you hear people yelling and saying, I'm hurt, I'm hurt, I'm dying or something like that. Almost certainly she's going to want to go fix it. Yeah. Because that's what she does. She's got that that medical brain, you know, and that I want to fix it brain. Meanwhile, I'm going to be dragging her out the back door, out, out the, the warehouse door. You know, let's yeah. get out of here. Let's get out of here. And that's it's so anyways, I, it just caused me to think a little bit uh, second, second guess things and kind of go, hmm, what do I how am I going to plan for this? You know, because I'm trying to be all prepared how yeah. would I plan for that? <laughs> and there's, there's times when you can help somebody and there's probably some times when you can't and you, yeah. you get, you got to bridle or curb your, your courage. Um, I think another decent example is Nish and I were recently in Miami on a vacation and uh, we went down near the port and there's people on those little scooters. And this gal was flying down the pathway on this scooter, probably going close to 20, 25 miles an hour. Mm. And she full on hit a palm tree. Oh, bam. And she, I think she was knocked out for a second. Now I didn't see the oh. initial impact. Nisha saw it. Nisha was like shocked. Oh my God. But what I remember is that Nisha and I, both ran to help her. So there's, that's a whole different level of yeah. wanting to try to run to help somebody. Sure. When you're, if it's a, a, a huge mass gathering and you, you start maybe hearing some pop, pop, pop. And at the first several seconds, you might not realize even what it is, but then you start seeing people hit the ground. Then you realize somebody out there has got a cordless hole puncher out there and you might not, for a few more pops, you might not even know where it's coming from because of walls of the city yeah. or something like that. And you're just like, wait, is it, where's it even coming from? So there's mm-hmm. probably close to three to five seconds that you're just in confusion. Mm-hmm. And then for somebody to have, be in that kind of situation and then say, Oh, wait a second. I need to help these people. Well, who do you help first? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where your courage needs to be triaged. You need to think triage in your head. Um, that person there is just dead. This person over here is crawling away. Maybe we can help them crawl to cover because obviously by now I can tell it's coming from over there. But Or this di- person over here is just sobbing their eyes out and they just need a voice to yeah, tell them where to go. And somebody, yeah. that's where somebody needs, that's where preparedness planning preparation in um, leadership, you have to 
you have to practice this stuff. So you have to actually think in your head, you dial 911 right now. You get over here. Stop worrying about that person. They're gone. Yeah. Come over here. Get behind that wall. Get down. Everybody get down. But you have to, somebody's going to have to step up and take charge, but you're mm-hmm. going to have to curb that courage because you don't, you might not even know where it's coming from. And you're going to, I wouldn't have to, say curb the courage. I would say hone. Yeah. The yeah. courage. Yeah. Hone it. Something like that. That I mean, don't go into something full heartedly because the next thing yeah. you know, you're just gone too. And you don't, well, I mean, do that's any- the first thing they teach you in CPR is you look at the scene yeah, to see if it's mm-hmm. safe for you to approach. Right. Yeah. We, we actually, Kristen and I belong to this group, the uh, community emergency response team cert. Mm-hmm. Right. Cert. And, and they're all over, all over the uh, uh, different, different cities and so on. And, and one of the things that they, they actually require members to take part in is this ICS NIMS training. It trains a lot of the, a lot of the basic training around it goes to those exact things. You, you mm-hmm. approach scene. If there's a, if there's, let's say a tornado had, has just gone through and you're approaching the scene, the last thing you want to do is put yourself into a, into an even more dangerous situation. You don't want to add to the casualties, you know, right. um, Unless you, you're you a would, storm chaser. Well, okay. Yeah. Anyways, but, but one of the things you could do to, to begin with is if you can hear my voice come toward me, because what that does is it separates out all the greens from all the yellows and reds and blacks, right? Speaking of triage. Mm -hmm. So there's some, there's some things to, some things to consider there that that's a big part of, of this, this NIMS training and the, and the ICS training. That's that's one of the things that I'd I'd like to hit on before we end the show today. Tell me what your thoughts are on uh, on Bill Eckert. Well, Bill has another one of those powerful stories from a second or third person. He wasn't actually there, but he knew a lot of people who were there. Plus, he was one of the many with the same story that they frequently worked in the towers. Yeah. So he has that near first person experience. And I saw a lot of that chatter on our chat line that we started or the, or the company I work for started. So um, a lot of the same stories, you know, I was, I was supposed to be there or I know somebody who was there. I know somebody who was supposed to be there and this is what they said. This is what they heard and this is what they saw. And uh, Bill had some really powerful um, stuff to tell. And I think it's extremely important to tell and retell the story of everybody um, because there's so many people that nobody heard of, nobody um, knows about. And when you go to the 9-11 Memorial and you see those names on there, the, like one of the name, the two of the people I'm going to keep telling their story forever is uh, John O'Neill and Ronald Buka. All but right. There's the stories that Bill told, and then there's you go around the memorial and you see all those names out there, and there's those stories of all those people that we don't hear all of their stories. And the, I've been to the memorial twice, and the second time Nish and I were looking, and um, I got a picture of it, and um, it's this gal's name plus her unborn child, and. Uh, yeah, I almost just fell down right there because I never that's a story I never heard. Yeah. And I think it's important that people hear those stories. So when it was uh, 
um, extremely important for me to hear all of Bill's, the relating of his, all of his uh, stories of those people. You know, he's a sales guy, right? Yeah. And, and he's, and he is one of the best sales guys I've ever known. So mm-hmm. what that means to me is it means he can talk and he can yeah. talk very eloquently when, when needed. The, I think one of the things, knowing him personally, seeing how, how different he was when yeah. he was explaining this yeah. versus when he's trying to sell you something. Mm-hmm. And maybe, I don't, know, I don't know if you caught it, the beginning of it was talking about his company, you know, yeah. the, the company that he works for. And he kind of went into that sales mode, you yeah. know, where he's talking about his software. He's talking about this and kind of the, the things that they do to help and blah, blah, right. blah, blah. And, and that kind of hear it, was, you know, that was kind of cool. And it wasn't a sales pitch. It was to provide right. context. Yeah. Right. But that, that's the point he, he went in and that, that's what I'm, I think one of the most powerful things for me is knowing him and knowing him for 23 years now mm-hmm. and seeing him shift from this sales guy to now we're talking about something very real yeah. and, and very potentially scary. He doesn't treat it as scary anymore, but he thinks of himself as very fortunate and very lucky because yeah. The night before he was there, you know, he was planning for the rest of the week and and he somehow, for some reason, he got called out to go somewhere else. And it's interesting that he was also on a plane at Dulles, which is where one of the planes took off from that was carrying these terrorists, you know? So he's very likely could have been on the tarmac at the same time that these frigging terrorists were there, you know? And that's a, that's a weird it's just a weird psyche thing to go on in your, in your head. And you can't, I don't think you can go through something like that and not, not be affected in a oh, yeah. way, you know? Yeah. It's almost as if you have like secondary PTSD or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what he, kind of what he referred to it as, you know, kind of that wartime PTSD thing going on. He didn't call it PTSD. He just said, it's kind of like that. You yeah. Know? What do and you that, think, Kristen? You've met Bill before. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's interesting because the Bill that I met was on a president's trip. And um, the Bill that was talking and re- reminiscing is just two different. I wouldn't have even yeah. recognized them as the same person. Yeah. Because when you met Bill, it was all kind of like lighthearted and we were having fun and people were drinking and it was just, you know, and he was causing trouble on the zip line and all these, you know, all these different things going on. And it was, um, you know, and we were arguing about who has it harder. <laughs> the husband's on the, the hus- road or the wife's at the, home. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> exactly. He definitely had his opinions. Yes. So. <laughs> he did. But mine are correct. Uh, my, my personal <laughs> opinion is similar to that of Bill Burr's. Uh-huh. Let's hear oh. it. Uh, let's, I'll just send you some of his YouTube videos. So he's talking about how, how hard, you know, white women in America have it. Yeah, let's not go there right now. Let's not go there right now. <laughs> Evidently, it's really hard. I had no idea. <laughs> oh, Ed, Ed, don't do it, man. Don't do it. I'm telling don't you. Don't throw my privilege in me, uh, in my face. We're sitting in the same ju- jacuzzi together, you know? <laughs> Um, okay, so there are a couple of other things I wanted to uh, I wanted to talk about. 
wait a second. Well, no, wait a second. <laughs> and Kristen clearly has something to talk about, okay, wait a but, second. but I Go wasn't ahead. planning on going there. That's that. so Kristen is so excited because she has a lot of background on the, the NIMS and ICS material. A lot of it came from the event and, and kind of the combination of, of what happened or the culmination of what happened after September 11th. But um, we didn't know that. Yeah, right, right. Like so we were in the dark because after September 11th, 2001, it was 2003, we start making preparations to move across the country. We moved in 2004 and I did, I stayed home because there was three kids then. No, we did a lot of sacrifices to have me stay at home and be with the kids. And it was around 10 years later that I finally went back to work. I got a job with the local government as a certified nursing aide, because that's what I did to get myself through college. And um, it wasn't until later that I got a job in the position that I'm in now, which was towards my degree. It took a while. But so in 2013, I started this part-time job uh, working in school health rooms for the county. Part of that job was you had to take and pass these ICS classes. And I was like, what the heck is ICS? So then I found out very fast that um, I had to pass three classes within six months of being employed. And it was under NIMS. But it was really fascinating because I was taking these classes and I was like, oh my gosh. And then I would tell Matt, did you know that they have this whole network now of people who have been trained and we can very quickly assimilate Mm -hmm. And we're scalable, like we can go up or we can go down. We can be just in local government or we can go all the way up to federal level. That's what the system is. It's a network to respond and to recover from emergencies. And it was all based on our weaknesses and our strengths that were discovered in 9-11. I really got into those classes. Yeah. I really enjoyed them a lot. Um And I would post when I would pass one. And then I went on to take more because it's just fascinating to me. Um, And that's when I brought it to Matt that I think we should volunteer. I've always followed Mr. Rogers thing where um, and that's probably why I go towards things, because he said, when something bad happens, look for the helpers. And I remember that. And I've always wanted to be a helper. That's me. But when I started going through these classes, I realized the best way to be a helper is to be organized and prepared as a helper. And so um, I love these classes. I love what the country's put in place. And to think that all people that work in governments need to have this class. So we know when we are called to an incident, how to organize, who to follow. And we know how to change quickly. That was one thing. If you watch the documentary uh, documentaries on 9-11, it went from a local problem of a plane going into a building. Oh, my gosh, that's terrible. 
So we're responding locally to, oh my gosh, now another plane has hit. It's much bigger than just what the engines were called in. We need more. And now it just, it grew so fast in size and scope. And one of the other weaknesses that came out was the radios. For fire to be talking to each other, they had their own codes and they understood it. But once they're talking to police or talking to port authorities, they each have their little ackermans. They could be the same. It means something completely different. So that was revealed. Then it became a, we not only need to know how to organize quickly and either grow or shrink down, either include local government or more government. But we also need to know how to communicate to each yes, other. Standardize our communications. Yeah. Right. To me, I think it's one of the most beautiful things our country has right now is just knowing there's thousands, tens of thousands, possibly millions of us who yeah. have taken this training and we're willing to respond. I know in the state of Maryland, not only am I a member of CERT, but I'm also a member of Maryland Response which is a medical reserve corps. And so they follow the same guidelines too. That's helped me because when I'm volunteering in one organization, I know how to respond correctly what the organization is. And it's the same in the other organization, the way I go in, the way I check in, who's in charge and how they set up their command posts. I, I remember, I remember actually we had a discussion about this back when you were originally taking the ICS training and you said, man, Matt, this is like incredible stuff. One of the biggest things you you said was all of the crap that they talk about in Hollywood movies and things like that, where nobody's prepared. Nobody knows what they're doing. A building is burning and all this. Nobody's responding. You're just thinking to yourself, somebody in that building has to have had ICS training. People around that building have to have had ICS training. There's this value to it that assures the United States, or at least regionally, if done properly, if people are actually paying attention in in those classes, we're going to have some very, very quick response to a lot of these disasters that occur. That doesn't mean that we that, you know, we rest back on our laurels and just go, well, you know, surely somebody else has done the ICS training, right? Doesn't necessarily mean that, but it does mean that there's very likely many people around us who have received that training. And I would hope that there's more people that are volunteering in groups like CERT. So I'm telling you right now, if you've taken the ICS training and you're not involved in a volunteer group, you need to get involved in a volunteer group because they will help you hone those trainings that you had into real life skill sets that you can keep carrying on with you. There's nothing like being in a real life exercise and places like the community emergency response team, they're activated on probably almost weekly now, we are used for all sorts of things, um, all sorts of community events. And so what's nice is you keep those skill sets that you trained by Mm -hmm. attending these events and following through with that. And also what I like about it is the number one thing they tell you is you need to prepare yourself and your household first. First. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. 
I remember uh, I've been on two mass casualty exercises, one at the uh, academy locally and one up, and at, the at, air, the up at the airport. And at the one at the airport, I remember we were, we had the moulage, <laughs> the uh, torn up, torn up leg. And we're like laying there uh, and they blew up or they put a big fireball out. And it was really actually kind of cool. And tried to make they tried to make it as realistic as possible for these new fire trainees at the at the airport so it was it was pretty impressive how they did it so yeah. and we got free t-shirts which were pretty cool yeah but. <laughs> and volunteer hours and volunteer hours Kristen to I think I've told you this before but at the end of each one of our shows we have this this period of what we call parting shots where we mm-hmm. each give our opinion on something either from the show or that that made we were prompted to think about and to convey to the audience and um so before we go into that i wanted to ask one more question of of kind of everybody ed i'll start with you i don't know about you but i have been using this time of reflection on the september 11th stuff to hopefully cause me to remember how that has changed me so one of the things that that I've done uh, is Kristen and I started watching a couple of different documentaries. One of them I've I've put it on our on our uh, social media, and that's the 9/11 uh, One Day in America. It's brand new, just came out like August 29th or something like that uh, on National Geographic, and it's six six episodes long. So it's basically six hours of binge watching if you're if you're up for it. From just about every single show, there's something that I could talk about, but I can't tell you, I've, I've heard it talked about the, the one thing that just about killed me was as the, at, you know, you got this building burning that is the, just the North tower at that point in time, probably a couple hundred firemen down in the bottom lobby. And they're all like grouping up and they're saying, okay, we're going to go up this ladder or this, uh, this set of stairs. We're going to go up this set of stairs. And they're kind of directing everything. And then all of a sudden you hear this up on the roof of the lobby and, and they all just look up and then they, you know, they start talking to each other again. And then you hear this again, you're just going and then they and then they announce, you know, they say what it is that's happening as those people who are having to choose between burning to death or falling to their death. And yeah. they said, I lost count of how many people were falling, you know, or jumped to their death because they didn't want to burn to death. The image that's kind of stuck in my mind is this. You hear the sound and then all of the firemen's ha- helmets just go and look up at the ceiling at the same time and it's just this oh my gosh that's just that just would kill you you know and only briefly and then they return to what they were talking yeah and then they go right back to what they were to what they were doing not that they'd care that they didn't care about it's just they're like well we're not going to fix that being down here so let's get organized so we can go up there and save these people you know oh my gosh it was just such such a powerful scene um, but there, and there's so many and just about every one of the the shows, I think we've watched four or five at this point in time. So it's just a, it's a, it's an incredible series. So uh, audience, if you haven't got a chance, definitely take some time, take a look at it. It's freaking awesome. Anyways, they, they, they really did a wonderful job on that one. Yeah, so Ed, that are there any, any reflections like that or any shows, documentaries, anything that, that, uh, that, 
have you've uh, had the opportunity to look at recently? The senior intelligence officer at Gitmo had a uh, basically sort of like a recommended, almost mandatory reading list and stuff like that. One of the main books was um, The Looming Tower, a powerful book, like very well documented. They turned it into a Hulu series. And uh, Jeff Bridges, I believe it is, plays uh, Special Agent John O'Neill. So that it documents mostly John O'Neill and uh, Ali Soufan. Ali Soufan was another FBI agent and Arabic linguist. And they were investigating Islamic terrorism before 9-11 even. They had some huge and significant cases that they were working on, such as the uh, coal bombing and stuff like that. They were also uh, had been connected to the teams that were working the East Africa embassy bombings and such. So they were trying to coordinate with CIA's Alex station, stuff like that. Uh, that's before 9-11 happened. So there wasn't, there's still a huge wall. There wasn't a lot of collaboration. They're probably to this day, even though they've done a sort of like a little bit of a revamp and there's a whole DIA units dedicated to mission deconfliction and collaboration and stuff like this. There's, you still can't ever reveal to anybody else who you, especially your human sources and methods are. Mm -hmm. So no collaboration can only go so far. So I would imagine there's still some communication barriers there, but uh, if you ever get a chance to read the book or watch the series uh, looming tower, it's probably one of the most powerful out there, but there's also Peter Lance's 1000 years for revenge which a big portion of that goes into detailing Ronald Buka. Mm -hmm. Ronald Buka was a former Green Beret in the Army, and then later he became a fire marshal with the, the Fire Department of New York. And he was also a DIA analyst. And he was, after 1993, he was working on Islamic terrorism because one of his friends with the Fire Department of New York got injured working on uh, the bombing of the World Trade, Se yeah. World Trade Center towers in 1993. Ronald Buca ended up reportedly uncovering the fact that uh, there was a fire department, New York accountant who had, he was Egyptian American and he had claimed he lost his badge in, in the application for his new ID badge, he got somehow some forged documents to enable him to gain an access level that he shouldn't have had. And Ronald Buka ended up finding out that, first of all, this guy was connected to Al-Qaeda because he was personal friends with the blind sheikh, Abdul Rahman. Mm -hmm. So there was that connection, plus he had done this new badge ID thing ostensibly to obtain blueprints of the twin towers. So yeah. apparently that had happened. And then when nine 11 occurred, Ronald Buka was one of the fire department members, one of 343 who responded and, and perished. And he was a marathon runner. And he was one of the guys, even though he was in all that gear, he ran up those stairs. And I don't know how far he got. He, they, I think he got up like 80 floors okay. before it started collapsing. Mm -hmm. But uh, we have one hero that's gone from that. John O'Neill from the other book I'm telling you about, The Looming Towers, he met with such opposition. Most of it was political, although he did have one apparent possible OPSEC violation he lost a briefcase with some 
classified information on it once or in it once, but they, some people think that that was a, a smear campaign and they kind of set him up, but whatever. Well, he left the FBI to get a security job at the world trade center towers. And when he got there, he got there just like a month or two before. Uh-huh. And when he got there, he had friends greet him there. And they said, well, you know, they knew his background. They knew he was in counterterrorism and all that kind of stuff. They said, well, don't worry. They'll never bomb this place again. And John O'Neill said, no, they'll try to finish the job. Yeah. And on 9-11, he perished as well. Yeah. Wow. That, yeah. The, one, of the, uh, one of the things that was interesting is how they, uh, how they're, so far they've drawn correlation between so, several of the people like the safety officer and the, um, and one of the other security officers in the uh, in the North Tower, he was also there during 1993, and he was one of those people who also believed, you know, it's coming, something's yeah. coming, and so he was like religious. Uh, he was a zealot about safety in the North Tower, and so the the people around him they would they would comment on it and say, yeah, this dude's he's he's nutty because he's he's always making us you know drill. He's always mm-hmm. making us drill our safe fire safety and oh gosh, we got to go down the stairs again and all this stuff. And they're super grumpy about it. But the, on that day, they were, you know, these people were, were uh, being interviewed and they said, yeah, this, he gave us, he's the one who saved us. If we hadn't have drilled so many times, most of these people would probably still be sitting in that, in that office building or whatever it might be, you know, and that's mm-hmm. just. Oh my gosh. It, anyways, so that's a that's a really, you know, a really good point. The, there were several people that were like that. So Kristen, what about you? Any uh documentary type things that you you've been watching them with me? Yeah, I've been <laughs> watching um the ones with you. I think you you spoke of those really well. I I think I was touched by the story of the fireman who was working at ground zero and then found out later a story about one of his family members and um, while he was helping somebody, that family member was perishing above him and he didn't even know it. Yeah. Um, That really got to me, made me tear up, but other documentaries I've read in the past, and this is kind of stirring up in me is uh, from Lisa Beamer, Lisa Beamer, Mm. um, Todd Beamer's wife that wrote Uh, let's roll so many years ago. And that's coming back to my mind because it's like, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about everyday people being called into action at some time. And, you know, know yourself. What kind of person are you? Are you going to be prepared? I am. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's like, that's a, it's a really good question. It's a question I think that the audience should should really uh, uh, give some thought to. I am just forever grateful for all the men and women and children who were on flight. Yeah. I can't even yeah. imagine. That's a good point to know yourself because if you're prepared and you know yourself and you know, you're simply not prepared enough, that's when you can raise your hand and say, um, excuse me, I, I need help here. I can't handle all this. Yeah. I, I'm I'm prepared to this level, but I can't handle all this. You yeah. 
seem more prepared. You take more charge of whatever. Tell me what to do. Yeah. I want to help, but I'm not prepared for all this. Yeah. Please yeah. help. Please help me. I need yeah. help. All right. I think it's time for parting shots. Parting shots. Um, Kristen, you're our guest here today. What parting shots do you have for the audience? If you haven't gotten involved yet, do get involved. Please look up your local community emergency response team. Yes, look up CERT. Um, You can get excellent training through CERT. It's phenomenal. I think that would be my parting shot for tonight. Very good. Ed, what about you? Never forget. We say we never forget, but what are we actually doing to really live that tomorrow is uh, the 20th anniversary of the 9-11 terrorist attacks and not every year but almost there's been a couple of years i've been either sick or too far um, into different um, employment situations but almost every year since the september 11 2001 attack i've taken some time within the that two or three day period to either jog, hike, bike, or something, 9.11 miles. Hmm. So you keep that etched in your mind, and every year annually you have that refresh. Number one, I'm doing this in honor and commemoration of all those people who um, made that ultimate sacrifice. And you are recommitting yourself to not forget them and um, empower yourself to help others to hopefully survive some bad times moving forward. Yeah. That's beautiful. Gosh, that it's such a such a great way of remembering such a uh, an important time in um, in our nation's history, nine eleven by by doing something like what you're doing. So it's excellent. Let's see if I survive it tomorrow. I'm out of shape. <laughs> um. So for for my parting shot, <clears throat> I actually had a. Uh, a few different things. Uh, first of all, in every single one of the interviews that we did and almost every single one of the interviews that we saw from the documentaries that we watched, there was, there was one thing that remained consistent. And that was when, when people are faced with these, with these really difficult times, life-changing events, we always tend to focus much more narrowly on things that are important to us, mm-hmm. fam- family and friends. Yeah. So, so just take the opportunity on, on nine 11 to remember not just those we've lost, those who are still with us and spend time with them. If you can, I know some people work on their, on, on nine 11, but just, just try to find time to spend time with your, with your family, with your friends um, so that you don't miss them uh, when Absolutely. they are gone or they don't miss you when you're gone. So, uh, and then the other thing is um, when we're in those type of situations where there's madness happening around us, uh, those who freaked out are the ones who, or they are, they froze in fear. They're the ones who lost their lives. Those who could, again, they could kind of, 
uh, hone in and focus on the things that's important. If what's important is getting down this staircase, then we're going to move these people down the staircase and we're going to move as calmly and as organized as we can. So we're all safe getting down, but we're doing it quickly. And so don't lose your mind. Don't, don't freak out in situations. And that's what preparedness can help you with. If you, if you practice it, um, preparedness can help you. There's a saying that they have in uh, in an organization, another organization I belong to, it's uh, practice makes progress, not perfect. Mm. Practice makes progress. And so if you, if you continue to practice, you'll continue to progress your, your uh, preparedness and you're just so that you have a lesser chance of freaking out or freezing up in difficult times. Um, And then just a, just a reminder that 9-11 is a somber or should be a somber time for people. We should remember these, this event that occurred and the people that lost their lives. But we should also remember if we just focused on the negative stuff that happened, we could get caught up in this, in this whirlwind of, of negativity that brings us down into a pit that, um, that we don't need to go. And it just leaves us there. Yep. And, and so if we start to try to think of those more positive things that have come from it, like, like NIMS, like ICS, like, like CERT, and, and um, some people don't like it, but Homeland Security, the Phoenix Project that I think it was Chuck that talked to us about that, the rebuilding of the Pentagon, the, uh, the 9-11 Museum and Memorial, these are beautiful things that came from such a, a horrible event. And we should come to come to love those things and treat them with the respect that they deserve. And, uh, and then lastly is it's, it's hard to imagine that we could even think about this these days, but the event did cause multicultural people to come together, yeah. black, black and white, um, Christian and Muslims, Jews, all coming together to protect and help each other while the buildings are burning around them and falling down around them. And it was, a, it was, that's another thing that came from the, from the documentaries, people are helping people and that's just the way it should be. So it's that's not, what I wanted to add in was yeah, like, yeah, yeah. when it comes down to it, how big are your differences really? Right. Yeah. We're all human. Yeah. Right? right. And so it's about time we learn to love our neighbors, right. yeah. no matter who they are. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm not I'm not saying that, you know, I'm I'm glad that please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Audience, you guys, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying I'm glad that this thing had happened. I'm no, horrified. Let's remember. Yeah, I'm yeah. horrified that it had to happen in the first yeah. place to cause us to change the way we have. But yeah. um so uh, so that was my It's my sad that we're kind of forgetting that a little bit and losing yes. it in this yeah. uh like divisive politics and um, the news nowadays is becoming almost like a fear and panic industrial complex. Don't get wrapped around the axle on this. This is still a time for unity and America is still the greatest country. So set aside those petty differences on political party lines and, yeah. and remain unified and, and love your neighbor. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Any, any more thoughts, either one of you? Uh, that's that's all really solid stuff. Thanks, guys. Good deal. Good deal. I, well, hey, I think it's a it's a wrap for this show. Um, it's an honor being being a part of this show with both of you, Kristen, and I know it was kind of last minute, but uh, <laughs> but thanks for joining and and helping us out during this. You bet. 
to our new and existing listeners, thank you. Uh, we really appreciate you you taking the time uh, out of your day to join us and, and listen to our show. Please be sure to uh, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to like, follow, and hit the bell on all those social media platforms out there. You can yeah, find us at our followers there. Thank you very Gen much X for your talking. followership. Yeah, Gen, absolutely. At Gen X talking. All right. Until next time, this is Matt Marshall signing off. Ed Wasson. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Matt. All right. Bye, guys. Night, guys. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.